Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Our former host Noah Hutchings lived an amazing life with adventures all over the world. Today we get to open the radio vault and listen in on a conversation talking about Noah's life, his experiences, and how he became a teacher of Bible prophecy. In 1998, Brother Hutchings reluctantly sat down at his 1951 Royal typewriter and started writing his autobiography. When he finished, it was a 344-page book titled, As It Is, In the Days of Noah. Since then, a great deal has happened to Brother Hutchings, and so he has added to the book, bringing it up to date. I have the great pleasure of joining him in presenting information from his amazing life as recorded in that book. Any book always starts at the beginning, but I'd like for you, if you would, just share with us why you wrote the book in the first place. Well, I mainly wrote the book because my friends and staff members here at the ministry kept dogging me or hounding me to write the book. (laughs) And I really didn't want to write the book because I responded, why would anybody want to read about me? And autobiographers are so dull anyway that usually people will read the first hundred or so pages and then put them up and never look at them again. But I'm glad I did write the book because it has helped the ministry considerably. We call it as it is in the days of Noah. You know, Jesus said as it was in the days of Noah. Well, we are in the days of Noah, not only the first Noah again, it seems like, but also this particular Noah. I'm not relating my ministry to the ministry of the first Noah who was a preacher of righteousness and built an ark. It took him 120 years. I'm not sure I'm going to be around that long, but the book has helped many, many people. I think it's been an encouragement to some. It's a good read, I understand, and even history teachers have used my book in their classes because it gives an account of times back in the 1920s and 30s that so many of the students anymore don't get from history books. I was just going back over the book a little bit before we started these programs, and it is really an easy read. Your special touch is seen throughout the book, actually, beginning in the introduction, and folks don't miss that part of the book. But it's a very interesting book. Your life has been an interesting life, and I'm glad, too, that you went ahead and wrote it. You know, I joined the ministry here in 1998, the very year that you wrote it, and I hadn't been here very long, and I heard people talking about, well, why don't you write that biography? And and I joined in because I think people need to know about your life. You've been here since 1951 at this ministry, and what's happened to you and this ministry over those years is very interesting. So let's go back, if we could, Brother Hutchings, to your birth. Abraham had an interesting life. First Noah had an interesting life. David had an interesting life. And, you know, you check the lives of some of the patriarchs in Scripture that had such an interesting life, or even historical figures, and you find that they were always willing to just do whatever God told them to do or open the door. They weren't reticent about taking chances and striking out to the promise land, for example. So I think that's kind of the story of my life. I like to think it is. And as I look back over my life, I think my life has been rather interesting, not only to me, but to other people. I was born on December the 11th, 1922. This was 15 years after Oklahoma became a state. 
When I was born, I had a grandma, Grandma Eskew, who was a fine Christian, Bible scholar. She read the Bible a lot, and she wanted to name all her children after Bible names. And when I was born, she came to my mother and said, I've already got a name picked out for him. And my mother said, what is it? My grandmother said, Boaz. We're going to call him Boaz. And my mother said, no, you're not going to call my boy Boaz. And do you have another name? And she said, well, I have Noah, the second choice. My mother was not a Christian at that time and hadn't read the Bible like my grandmother had. And she said, well, Noah, yeah, Noah Webster wrote the dictionary. Yeah, that's a good name. So they named me Noah Webster Hutching. That pleased my grandmother also, so that's what I was called. Of course, I was born at Metro, Oklahoma. That was a community about 10 miles from Hugo down on the Kaimishi River, southeast Oklahoma. It's also called Little Dixie or Yellow Dog Country. Mm. reason it's called Yellow Dog Country is if the Democrats ran a yellow dog, all the Democrats would still vote for it. Democratic country, southeast Oklahoma. We lived at that time on what we called Old Sophie's Place. Old Sophie was an Indian woman who had her part of her Indian land and had a house on it. She had two houses. And we lived on one. And I don't remember what tribe old Sophie belonged to, but she was quite tall. And she was very nice, didn't bother anyone. And she just wanted my dad to live on the land and take care of it. I don't think she even charged him any rent. Later on, though, I remember when I went to school, he moved to the other side of the road. Why he moved, I have no idea. Messer is a gravel pit area. In fact, I think the state finally turned most of it into a gravel pit. And I don't know why my dad moved down the road. He just liked to move. Maybe he liked to color the rocks on the other side of the road. That's all I know. And I attended Messer School. That was the first school I went to. I can remember after that, we moved to Boggy Bottom. That was in 1928. And I can remember back then, prices of cotton and corn was good, and everyone on the farm was making it all right. They were able to sell their cash crops for pretty good. And my father was a good farmer, and he was backed by a doctor in Hugo, Oklahoma, who wanted to go down on Boggy Bottom. That would have been about 10 or 12 miles in the other direction, southwest of Hugo, on Boggy River. And he went down and cleared land and planted cotton, corn, peanuts, potatoes. He worked very hard, and we all did. There were six kids in the family. And we also hired some labor and planted a large farm. And it was good land, and it really produced. But then the 1929 crash came, and we had all that cotton and corn and peanuts and potatoes. It didn't even pay to pick the cotton because the cotton didn't pay for the picking and ginning after you sold it. And I can remember huge piles of cotton we just left out in the field. And corn was only 10 cents a bushel, as I remember. It didn't hardly pay to pick the corn. My dad went bankrupt real fast, along with everyone else. 
And I can remember in the fall, in the winter, going up and looking up and down the Boggy River, and you'd see little pillars of smoke coming up and down Boggy River. Well, what that was was steel. Many of the farmers turned to making whiskey, moonshine. Of course, if they got caught, they spent two years in McAllister. But those were difficult times, and the Great Depression followed. And I know I went to live with my grandmother because we simply didn't have any food. And my grandmother lived with another one of her children. My grandmother was a Civil War widow, and she got a Civil War pension. And it was an experience for me to live with my grandmother and hear Civil War stories. And it was there that I became interested in the Bible. I was only, uh, what, seven years old? Mm -hmm. And go to school and stay with my grandmother. And I took up reading Bible stories. She had a lot of Bible story books. And I think I read through the whole Bible. And that, I think that's where I got my love for the Bible. Later, my father and mother and the whole family moved up in that area near Hugo. And I remember we lived on a farm he was sharecropping, where you moved on a farm that someone owned and plant the crops and everything. And when they were gathered, the owner would get half. He would provide everything else, the seed and the fertilizer and the horses and the instruments to farm with. And we were that poor. There at one place, we lived by a creek near the schoolhouse. And in the spring and winter, there was water in the little creek. But in the summer, it would dry up, and we had to carry water about a quarter of a mile to do the laundry and provide water for the family. That's how poor we were. And I can remember at one time, my oldest sister had married, and it was in that house that she came home to have her first baby. And we had an old doctor who came to see her and take care of her during childbirth. His name was Johnson. And after my sister had given birth to the baby, Dr. Johnson came to see how she was getting along. And my mother said, my boy is in there. He has a stomachache. I'm concerned about him. And would you go see him? Boy, he went in and thumped around on me and said, well, he's a little puny. I'll give him some calomel and you can get a prescription filled. And if you don't get along in a few days, let me know. And he happened to have a young intern with him. And the young intern said, you mind if I look at him? And Dr. Johnson said, well, go ahead. So he went in, looked at me, and come back and said, his appendix have ruptured, and if he is not operated on within 24 hours, he will die. So I think it was God's providence that my sister at that time had her first child, and it was providence also, I think, that that young intern was with that doctor. Else, there wouldn't be the book that we're talking about today. Nor would there be the Noah Hutchings we're sitting here across the table from. You know, Brother Hutchings, that's interesting that you would mention that. And I know that later on, you're going to talk about some other times that God really showed himself strong in your life when you were on some tours with the ministry, as a matter of fact. You know, in my book, there are a lot of humorous incidents, and a lot of people appreciate the book for that mm -hmm. also. You have a unique sense of humor. Working here at the ministry with you all these years, I have recognized that now sometimes you're pretty serious, but there are other times when you just come up with some of the most 
hilarious comments. And this book has a lot of those in there, a lot of anecdotes. So just for that reason, you might want to get the book because it really does have a lot of humor in it. One incident right after I was operated on for appendicitis, my mother sent my younger brother, who was probably only five years old, I'd say five or six, out to the barn to get some eggs. And he went out, he couldn't find any eggs in the nest, but there were some eggs under the barn. The hens would go under the barn and lay eggs, so he crawled under the barn, and it was dark under there, and he lit a match, set the barn on fire, and we looked out, and his barn was burning down. And, of course, there was nothing we could do to let it burn. And we didn't see my little brother. And we thought that he had burned up in the barn. After the barn was nothing but ashes and cinders, we were poking around in the cinders to try to find my little brother. And my mother had a stick. She was poking around, and she poked it down, and something went come up and smoke come up and she poked it again and the smoke come up and hit she said started crying and said oh i found harold i found harold so we all run over there and took the shovel and moved the ashes around but it wasn't harold it was sweet potatoes that had baked in the <laughs> barn when it was burning <laughs> Later on, though, Harold came home. He had run off. He was scared because he had burned the barn down and run off in the woods. But after a couple of hours, he came home. And it was just one of those incidents on the farm that was amusing. And we have included stories like that in our book. You had mentioned that you moved around a great deal. We lived in 15 places during the time I was born until I went in the Army and finished high school. And every place was old somebody's place. Usually they were old places. I remember a couple of years ago, my three sisters and I went back to Hugo, and we got in a car, and we went to every place where we had lived from the time that we could remember when we were born, places we lived during the Depression, later on when we went to high school, and they were all gone. There was not one of them left. They were all torn down. Hugo, the county seat, is still about 5,000 population, about what it was when I was born in 1922. The place we lived down in Boggy Bottom, it's still a small community there. I remember the school we went to when we lived at Boggy Bottom. I rode a horse to school. Not very many people had cars. We didn't have a radio. We did have a wind-up Victrola, and I think we were middle class because we had a wind-up Victrola that we played records on. A lot of people would come by to hear some of the country singers like Jimmy Rogers then and others. But the school there at Boggy Bottom was a one-room schoolhouse. One teacher taught all eighth grades, no air conditioning, no electricity, no electric light. No central heating. There was a pot-bellied stove out in the middle, mm -hmm. and this one teacher taught all eight grades. Some people say, well, you surely couldn't learn anything. No electricity, no computers, no central heating. Hot in the summer, cold in the winter. One teacher teaching eight grades. How in the world could you ever learn anything? But we managed, and I think... Students then were more eager to learn and more anxious to learn. Of course, at night, we did our homework with a coal oil lamp. I remember going to high school. We did have, by that time, a bus, and we were able to ride the bus to high school. 
Of course, we had to get up early first and milk the cows and do the chores about 4.30 in the morning and get up cold mornings and take the bucket out and milk the cow, get hit in the ear with a tail full of frozen cockleburrs. That'll wake you up. But it was a great life. It develops character. Mm -hmm. Let me put it that way. I remember the first year in high school. I particularly remember our coach, Oz Dungess. He also taught civics. He was a Republican, and he let everybody know that he was a Republican. Now, a Republican in Little Dixie was something, especially a teacher. And he was convinced that Franklin Roosevelt was going to turn the United States into a communist nation just like Russia. And he did not like Franklin Roosevelt at all. And he really let his class know why he did not like Roosevelt. At that time, there was some kind of commodities program. People were hungry, and probably a good thing, and they had distributors to distribute cheese and beans and cornmeal and flour and lard to those who were in desperate need. I had an Uncle Henry who was a FDR distributor. He lived up on Cloudy Mountain. I had an uncle who had an old Essex. Not many still had cars back when I was a freshman in high school. Uncle Fred took the family up to visit Uncle Henry up on Cloudy Mountain. We got there, and being a distributor and being convinced that FDR was United States Messiah, he had a huge picture of Franklin Roosevelt out on his front porch, about a 10 by 10 picture, cardboard picture. And Uncle Henry took the family around the back to the storeroom to show him his store of commodities. Knowing Uncle Henry, he probably would say, well, here's a pound of beans for you, and here's a pound of beans for me. Or here's a pound of cheese for you, and here's a pound of cheese for me. But in any event, he was showing the family his commodities in the storeroom in the back and left me out on the front with Franklin Delanor's picture, whom I was convinced was Satan's helper, who was going to turn the United States into a communist nation. So there happened to be some Crayolas there on the desk, just inside the door, and I picked up a black Crayola and went out and drew Mr. FDR a pair of glasses, a mustache, a goatee, and then drew him a couple of horns up on his forehead, and then wrote on it, FDR, the harebrained idiot. And here come Uncle Henry leading the family around again to the front porch, and he saw the picture that had been desecrated by me. And he began to rant and rave and jumped up and got his shotgun and said, somebody has done this. I want to know where they're at. Where, where did they go? He began to look under the floor and up and down the road in the bar ditches. He was going to kill them. He had his shotgun. There was someone who would dare do that to his idol, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And he charged back at me and said, did you see anybody do that? I said, no, I didn't see anybody do that, but I done it myself. And so I think the family kind of knew that maybe I had done it. When my mother gathered the family up and we got back in Uncle Fred's car and took off back home, and I was sure relieved. But that was one of the incidents I write about in the book. You were a mischievous little feller, weren't you? <laughs> well, I was dedicated to what I believed at that time. <laughs> We did finish high school, and immediately after high school, war clouds were gathering in Europe. 
Hitler had conquered Europe, threatening the invasion of England, and then Pearl Harbor happened on December 7, 1941, then the draft. I was of draft age, and so I was drafted into the Army and inducted at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, was shipped to Camp Roberts, California for basic 13 weeks. My unit was field artillery. I was trained in field artillery, fire direction, and survey. Shipped down to Fort Ord for ranger training for six weeks. At that time, some of the soldiers in the South Pacific particularly were having trouble adjusting to the kind of life in the South Pacific, fighting. Some of them were having trouble mentally, standing up on the rigors of training they had to go through, standing up under combat. So we were given six weeks of ranger training and then shipped overseas. And overseas, I did not end up in a field artillery unit, though. I ended up in an aircraft, 90 millimeter. Ever who was taking care of assigning soldiers probably didn't know much difference between field artillery and an aircraft artillery, but there's considerable difference. And I assigned to the unit, and I was given the job of figuring, firing data for the field artillery unit, 90 millimeter, which was entirely different. And I had been there in the unit for just a few days, though, and here come a van in with a parabola on top of it. It was radar. And very few people, even in the Army at that time, had seen such a radar unit. So they told me, said, well, there it is. I asked, what is it? They said, radar unit. And they pitched me a manual to teach me, or I was supposed to learn myself, how to operate a radar unit. But finally, I think after a few days, some fellow did come around and train me and a couple of other fellows how to operate a radar unit. It was an excellent unit. Figured all the firing data for the guns, had cables going to the guns, the 90 millimeter. We had 16 90 millimeter guns, and the radar unit figured all the firing data, told the guns the elevation, the azimuth, the direction, even set the fuses for when the fuses were to go off when they got near the airplane. Oh, it was a marvelous unit. And there was a little unit on the back on wheels. And we asked what that was, and they said, well, that's a computer. That's the first time I'd heard the word computer. And the computer figured all that out. Now, what year was this? Beginning of 1943, maybe end of 1942, Mm -hmm. I think it was. Mm -hmm. I spent about three, three and a half years in the Army in the South Pacific. We first went to New Caledonia. It took about 10 days on a ship to get from San Francisco to New Caledonia. There was no escort. It was a huge ship. I think they crowded about 10,000 soldiers on that ship. I think beans was all we had to eat because they couldn't put that much food, different things for soldiers. I think we ate beans about three times a day. And then when we got to New Caledonia, they shipped us up into the hills. And here come an old colonel out and said, take these boys out on a 25-mile hike and see what they've got. Well, there was Air Force units and Navy units with us also, but we had just gone through ranger training. Wasn't in trouble for us, but 
the Air Force unit, for example, they started off singing Nothing Can Stop the Army Air Corps, but I'll tell you, a 25-mile hike in about 110-degree weather, mm-hmm. well, high humidity would stop the Army Air Corps because <laughs> not any of them even got out to 12 and a half miles. They had to send trucks out to pick them up. But our group, we actually double time about the last five miles back into camp. After we got to our anti-aircraft unit, got proper training on the radar, we went up into New Guinea and then went on up to the Philippines. During the war, one of the main characters was General MacArthur. Did you have any dealings with him? Not directly, of course, but we did go in the second day at Lingay and Gulf, and you know, saw him waiting. We had set up there on the beach, and General MacArthur came in. We thought a lot of General Douglas MacArthur, the Army did, because he considered his men, and he would not risk lives without reason. He bypassed strongholds and just froze them out, cut them off, rather than risk soldiers in order to take a position that could be bypassed and cut off. Everyone in the Army that I knew of thought highly of General MacArthur. I know he wasn't thought too highly in some of the political bastions here in the United States. If he had been in control of Iwo Jima, we would never have taken Iwo Jima. Now, when we got to the Philippines, there was a huge kamikaze attack on our convoy just off Bataan Peninsula. I think they'd done every plane they had almost as kamikazes to try to sink as many ships as they could. And really something to be in a kamikaze attack. You talk about graphics. Wow. And when we got in on the island on Luzon, there really was no Japanese planes to shoot at. Now, Japan had recalled, I think, all their air force because they were expecting an invasion of Japan, and they were saving all their planes for kamikazes, and there was no plane to shoot at. So they put us in as a field artillery unit with the 1st Cavalry Army Division. And for the rest of the war, I figured field artillery again, firing data for our anti-aircraft battalion, and I really enjoyed it because that was something that I liked to do, and very, very good. We were not in a radar unit anymore. I was out where I wanted to be, out firing field artillery for field artillery pieces. It was really an enjoyable time for me about the last six months of the war. The war ended with the atomic bomb in Japan. Where were you when that happened? I was on Luzon. It was getting up in the fall of 45, and we were wondering why we were not getting ready to invade Japan. I know I thought, well, if they don't hurry up, they're going to have to wait till 46 because no one would be stupid enough to invade Japan in the wintertime. So we were waiting for orders to get our unit ready to go to Japan, but nothing was happening, no orders. And then one day we were told that an atomic bomb had been dropped on Hiroshima, and then a couple of days later on Nagasaki, and then the war was over. It was anticlimactic. Here we'd been over there fighting for three, three and a half years, and here we dropped two bombs, and the war is over. It seemed so needless all the time we'd spent over there. You would think that everyone would have been happy that the war was over, but 
it ended so suddenly. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today. Get the entire conversation on CD and Noah's biography for a gift of $20 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. So many wonderful resources by Noah Hutchings are also available online, swrc.com. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.